Hello and welcome to the 202nd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Monday the 13th of November 2023 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. After a much longer break than expected, we're back at it. This week Donald and myself discuss a really excellent book we recently read on the socialist calculation debate. The book is called Rivalry and Central Planning and is written by an Austrian economist Don Lavoie. This Saturday, we were part of a panel on socialist planning organised by Troy Vitesse of Half-Earth Socialism at the Historical Materialism Conference in London. Our presentation was entitled Revisiting Marx's Concept of Socialist Planning. It was really interesting to be on the panel and it was great to meet people who had a lot of, I think, very copacetic ideas to ourselves. Safe to say we're busy working away on the book and have completed a few chapters in the last couple of weeks. If you'd like to find out more about the book project and how to support it, head on over to theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com. This week I also have the following patrons to thank, Victorienne Vandos and Ryan. If you'd like to help support the show, please head on over to the Patreon where you can get access to all those Patreon-only episodes and the Discord server. My podcasting output is a little reduced at the moment due to writing the book, but I have about at least six interviews in the works right now, and the Understanding Class series is due to restart in the coming weeks. So please bear with me, and I guarantee the output will eventually return. It's just the book is killing the podcast. Okay, to the discussion. So, Donald, we have recently read a book called Rivalry and Central Planning by Don Lavoie. He was professor of economics, the Koch brothers professor of economics at George Mason University, where he taught from 1981 to 2001. This is a book, some might say a kind of a revisionist book on the socialist calculation debate from an Austrian point of view. What did you make of this book? Yeah, uh, it was very, very good. And I think your audience will already have figured out your little plan here, which is to take every uh, good review of a book we do and turn it into content for the podcast. So this is the latest edition. But it's a, this is one of the very best ones I think we've come across in our research. And it's from an Austrian. So we didn't expect that. But here we are. Right. When he, when I was reading it, I was very impressed overall with the book and the type of argumentation in it. Obviously, there's quite a number of flaws, we think, from Marx's point of view, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in the arguments, he puts forward the people's arguments in their best light most of the time and deals with them in a proper academic fashion and deals with the arguments and doesn't really try and throw too much shade at people, which is like... So surprising when you're dealing with this stuff, because, you know, I would think that this is probably a more scholarly, it's probably the most scholarly thing I've read on the socialist calculation debate that really tried to represent the different viewpoints. I think certainly as fair as more fairly than anything else I've read on the topic. Yeah, you get the impression when reading this that, you know, the author is not trying to misrepresent anyone. He genuinely believes that he's putting forward the honest view of all of the people that he's representing. So 
just to briefly say there's only a few parts really to this book so it's pretty easy for the listener to understand the general idea he's talking about the so-called calculation debate he begins with marx he talks about the austrians arguments against marx then he talks about the market socialists and then the austrians again their response to the to the market socialists so that's the that's the kind of framework of the book and there's a lot of different angles to it including places where he's more sympathetic to Marxism than to the neoclassical framework, which is interesting. Back in probably 2008 or nine, when the first financial crash happened and you're like on the internet going like, what the hell is going on here? And you start coming across like, you know, heterodox economic stuff. And one of them at the time, massively influential on the internet was the Austrians. And, you know, they say they have some actual insights that are absolutely correct about neoclassical economics. They theorize about the capitalist economy as a dynamic economy, not an equilibrium economy. They have a much more realistic view of the economy as a more dynamic system than a static general equilibrium system as it's modeled by the neoclassicals and, as we will get to see, the market socialists. Right, who very much were a part of the neoclassical school. And that's something he like really takes issue with. But at the same time, I think he represents their positions. So yeah, we, we could, I guess, just like a briefly talk about how he begins the book, which is talking about Marx. That's where he begins. He says, you know, that Marx kind of had a theory of socialism that was, he, he puts forward the idea that it, it emerged from his writings on capitalism, that there's a sort of uh, an implicit understanding of what socialism means from Marx's capital and his other texts. Also, that the, the kind of way that Marx takes issue with the, in his day, utopian socialists. And, and he's pretty good on this. He says that, well, you know, Marx wasn't just some kind of like guy that the Austrians, he says, always paint him as. He says, Austrian and neoclassical economists don't understand in general that for Marx, you know, there were things that the economy needs to achieve in order to work in the real world. And then there were things that were specific to a commodity motor production, as he calls it, which I think is quite quite a correct way to call it. And he says what Marx was doing was he was distinguishing between the things that are necessary for an economy in principle in general and the things that are necessary for a commodity or capitalist economy so that you could see what socialism implies by direct like implication. And uh, so that piece is very good. The kind of opening is very good. And... Then he goes off the tracks completely, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, like he's, he says, you know, some things about Marx that we would definitely challenge, you know, and it's the one week part of the book, I suppose. Well, it's a kind of surprising because sometimes it kind of sounds like he's only read Mises ideas of Marx, but other times you know, when you read them, like that introductory part, you feel like he really gets quite a lot of the ideas of Marx too. Yeah, indeed. That's quite confusing. You know, we'll get to just now in a, in a minute, I want to make one other point first, but we'll get to how he doesn't really have a good understanding of Marx at all. And that becomes clear, like of quite, you know, like basic concepts in Marx. But but yeah, that, that initial piece when he talks about how you can understand socialism through Marx's analysis of capitalism, I think that's great. You know, So the first problem that I, I would have with his take on Marx is, again, as you say, he goes to von Mises and he seems to take his word for it, that Marx had a view of a non-capitalist economy that would be, well, I'll just quote him. He says, he's quoting uh, Mises, I think, here. 
says the mind of one man alone is too weak to grasp the importance of any single one among the countlessly many goods of a higher order goods of a higher order he means like producer goods like capital goods he says that his aim in the opening parts of the book are to show that marx's concept of central planning as he calls it is utopian in the marx's sense marx's sense of the word that it's demonstrably unworkable he says he takes this view pretty clearly from von mises where he basically says that Marx is wedded completely to the idea of central planning in this kind of like commonly understood sense. And he repeats this several times. He says like that Marx's idea is that the whole economy should be directed by a single will as if by a single person and so on and so on. Like this conception of what central planning is. And because he takes that view and he, he contrasts that with capitalism, which he says is like a, a system of private entrepreneurship where you have lots of people doing lots of different things and trying things and making profits and so on. And he, he contrasts those two. And, you know, that's a mistake. I mean, Marx, Marx doesn't think that. And he never quotes Marx. He never attempts to show that Marx thinks that. He just repeats it several times and quotes Mises, who implies it several times. Right. It's interesting because, like, I assume that what he is doing there is von Mises is is actually talking about the kind of Hilferding general cartel view of socialism. That wasn't Marx's. That is the problem we find a lot is that people say they have this concept of what Marx actually said about central planning or planning or anything. And what Marx said was vanishingly little about about that process that could be interpreted in, in a vast number of ways. And it's telling that they don't in, in the book here because he's very, the book is replete with loads of very interesting quotes when he's dealing with the arguments. He puts the arguments specifically that people made and, you know, he displays them in their correct light, I think, and argues against them correctly. But in this instance with Marx, like he literally, it's a quote of Mises he has to talk about Marx. And when I was reading that part at the book, you know, that I was like, oh God, here we go. But like, it is, it is the fatal flaw in, in the analysis in the book. Yeah, I think it's one of, the, one of the major ones early on. There's also a second problem here where he gets Marx wrong. And I think it's not too strong to just say straight out that he gets Marx wrong. So he talks about in one part, he, fairly early on in the book, he's discussing the possibility of using labor hours. This is before he really gets to the calculation debate stuff. But he's, ta he's talking about von Mises again and quoting him. And obviously, this concept goes all the way back to Marx and even before, but Marx had a specific view on labor time accounting economy. And what he says is something that doesn't make any sense at all and really would make you question his knowledge of Marx at a very superficial level. So he quotes von Mises. He says they're discussing this, or von Mises is discussing this idea of reducing complex labor to simple labor in order to be able to work out labor time accounts. And he says this is one of the big problems, which is true with labor time accounting. It's one of the, the things that people have traditionally pointed to and said is a problem with, with the labor time economy. So I'll, I'll quote a little bit of what he says. He says, Mises argues that there is no way in practice to translate labor hours contributed by electrical engineers, janitors, and professional athletes into a common unit called a simple labor hour. And he goes on to basically say that, well, I'll read, I'll quote again. The question is whether electrical engineering hours are more valuable than janitorial ones. And if so, how much more valuable they are. 
it can be answered only by imputing consumer evaluations through many stages of the structure of production in order to attribute to each factor its part in producing the final product. Now, this is simply a mistake. What von Mises and the author are doing here is mixing up the Marxian definition of value with the subjective theory of value, which maybe is what their background is, what they understand value to mean. But it's a very basic mistake. You know, a Marxian calculation of value would have nothing to do with comparing a janitor and an electrical engineer's work in qualitative terms. So that line, the question of whether electrical engineering labor hours are more valuable than janitorial ones, can be answered only by imputing consumer evaluations. That indicates that what he's trying to do is to impose this subjective theory of value onto the idea of reducing complex labor to simple labor for the purpose of labor time calculation. And that simply that just doesn't make any sense. Right, because in Capital, Marx theorizes that complex labor produces value at multiples at the rate of simple labor. And this is based upon how much extra it takes to train a complex labor. So a surgeon versus the bin man. The bin man only requires, say, up to a secondary level, secondary school level of education. Must know how to read and write, blah, blah, blah. And the state may expend 5,000 hours of labor to get that bin man up to the level where he can be a bin man. Now, the surgeon might require an extra 10,000 hours of investment into his skills as a surgeon. And so 15,000 hours in total is invested into creating the surgeon. That surgeon will create value at a rate three times after the bin man will create. It's got nothing to do with people's estimations of the utility, the differences between the utility of collecting bins or doing a lung transplant. It's an objective material ratio that would determine the amount of value that is created. So it's mashing together two very different value theories. The listener will absolutely think at this point that we have nothing but bad things to say about this book because having said it's very good, then we just said he doesn't know anything about pretty simple, you know, Marx's concept of value. I mean, something that maybe he should know a bit more about if he's going to write on this subject. But, you know, having said that, his main theme here is the calculation debate. And what he's really doing is expressing what we're obviously um, in the, in the works that he's reading, the general view of what Marx said. Okay, and what Marx thought, and that is that Marx was interested in a centrally planned economy in the context that we've talked about. And secondly, that the labor token idea, labor time accounting, is something that everyone agrees doesn't work, so you don't need to spend much time on it. And he doesn't spend much time on it, he just kind of the people that he's arguing against also don't believe in it, so he, he wouldn't see much need to spend time on arguing against it. So, what were Mises' critiques of this? Inverted commas, Marxist concept of, you know, a central planner of one do with a large brain sitting in an office somewhere deciding the entire role of an economy. Right. Well, you know, you would think he had something of like an open goal there when you set yourself up with a, an opponent like that. But So we had a, f- a few critiques to begin before we even get on to the market socialists. Basically, he does a, a bit of a sleight of hand, to be honest, on Mises. He, he recognizes that you need certain things in an economy. For example, saving on labor, you know, efficiently using it in some sense, saving on materials, that the economy like pays for waste when that happens, that there's some kind of cost to, to wastage, and that 
you know, there's uh, uh, some kind of selection mechanism where, like, you know, things are things are chosen. You know, don't just produce at random. You you choose what to produce and so on. Uh, now, those kind of results are needed by any economy. But what von Mises wants to claim is that they can only result from private entrepreneurs basically bidding up and down the prices of production goods with their own money. So that's the case he has to make. So, you know, for example, he says that calculation by exchange value furnishes a control over the appropriate employment of goods. That is accounting practices. This is the author saying that is accounting practices reveals whether a particular expenditure of money has been profitable and the profit loss signal guides resources towards more valuable uses. Now, you can already see the conflation here. The word appropriate here, when von Mises talks about a control over the appropriate employment of goods, that's doing all the heavy lifting. So von Mises is using appropriate as a synonym for profitable. And absolutely, if you do this, then yes, private commodity production economy is the only possible way of appropriately allocating goods because you've defined appropriate in advance to mean profitable for individual companies. So it has a profitable return on it, then it's appropriate. But of course, this is a sleight of hand. I mean, there's no, uh, you could think of many different examples, but I mean, everybody knows that that, that that's a very, very bad synonym for appropriate. We could talk about, you know, one billionaire having exchange value ability to, to purchase things in excess of maybe a whole country's purchasing power of millions of people. And according to this, the millions of people, the producer choices that would cater to the needs of millions of people are not appropriate compared to the one multi-billionaire. So that's the kind of logic that von Mises is using. So this is the basic sleight of hand that the Austrians argue about throughout this book. They equate this, the search for profit with appropriateness yeah. or rationality. rationality is always just profitability. Now, in a communist society, if we're talking about the analysis that the GIC, the Group International Communists, did in the Fundamental Principles, if we look from their equations, there is no profit in their equations, right? There is just costs and prices, okay? So what would rationality be in such an economic system? Maybe the Austrians are correct, and there is no rationality in such a system, right? We'll argue against that, right? But that's a massive argument you have to make right you could make the argument against the straw man of marx's one dude being a central planner sitting in his office trying to plan the entire economy but it's a very big step to make the only choices in modes of production of a certain degree of complexity between profit-seeking behaviors and dude with large forehead sitting in an office right and that's the dichotomy that they need to make they can't entertain any other possible selection mechanisms. They have to say it's either this totally unrealistic thing or else it's our option. Another point they make, I mean, is supposed to show that only market prices can tell producers what is demanded in terms of capital goods. It sort of ripples out from consumer goods to these higher orders based on effective demand, right? But again, it depends on a sort of circular logic because I mean, they would say that because the commodity market reproduces some firms and not others, that this must be the only way you can allocate resources because those firms that do reproduce are going to meet consumer demand. So that's why they're reproducing. And the knock-on demand for capital goods is reproduced that most efficiently meets consumer demand. 
But yeah, this all takes for granted a commodity economy to begin with. There's no allowance made for any kind of non-commodity economy or any other way this could happen, that this end result could be achieved whereby, for example, demand is met. They say the only way this could be achieved is through a system of private entrepreneurs uh, bidding up and down the prices. So if the price of something goes up, it squeezes out the inefficient producers and only the most efficient ones are remaining. If the price goes down, it means it's being underutilized and more producers can come in. So they, yeah, they conflate, you know, the, the mechanism specific to a commodity economy by which these things are done and the principal result that any society needs maybe to save on things or to use things in a way that's efficient in the much broader sense of not wasting things. Also, like the book or von Mises arguments are also not just a response to Hilferding and these guys, but also to the actual failures of war communism in the Soviet Union, I think 1918 to 1920 period, when they tried to bring in the concepts that were developed by Hilferding and Neurath and some of these people of, well, more Hilferding of the general cartel, where you could get rid of prices and just deal in physical quantities. Uh, and so that was like a complete disaster in the Soviet Union. After two years of it and production had become a total mess, obviously there's going to be other reasons making it a mess like war and revolution and stuff like that. But even the Soviets themselves saw that in reality it was a complete failure and led them to going to introduce the new economic program, the NEP, which basically was reintroducing market dynamics again to make sure that the economy had at least some basic levels of functions. So it's a, re it's a response to both of them. Yeah, and that's why uh, he speaks about rivalry, I think, throughout the book and in the title, because the Austrian critique, again, we're, all, we're coming back to this, but it is this sleight of hand, you know, where they, they say something like, well, you have to have lots of different minds kind of working on these problems and figuring out the best substitutions and everything else. And rather than just one mind, which takes one decision and then runs with it. So they, they would have, I mean, that's the kind of idea. You have to look at it through that frame, through that lens of war communism and the things that maybe von Mises was thinking about at the time, where, you know, in the imagination, central planning involves this one person or a small group of people, and they're making a decision. So they're saying, we're choosing capital good a or B or C, whereas there would say, you know, a, a capitalist economy is a viable economy because it chooses A, B and C, and then the market can decide what one gets um, selected. So they don't, and we'll get onto this, I think a little bit more, they don't allow for the fact at all to come in because it would sink their whole project, that there's any other way that a society could try A and B and C, except capitalist competition between those three to find out which one succeeds in the market. Like in Voltaire's novel, Dr. Pangloss talks about the best of all possible worlds, where the term Panglossian comes from. And it's like, for Mises and these guys and the Austrians, capitalism is the best of all possible worlds, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's no attention given to the possibility of anything else in the sense that, like the deeper point here is that the, the very structure of the economy's production processes and the production goods that are that are thought up, that are developed for them, within them, and that are then refined through competition. That's all a function of the commodity economy itself. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. There's there's refinement going on and there's uh, new ideas come, being created in a commodity economy, but they're, they're all a sort of function of the fact that you're in a commodity economy. And I think that's the thing that the Austrians can't see. They just assume that it's the only possible 
it's the only possible world, as you say, of all worlds, and therefore what it does in exactly the way that it does it is what you should aim for. Interestingly, I think the market socialists and even post-market socialists, we could talk about modern planning schemas, maybe we will a little bit later, they fall into the exact same thing. They take that totally for granted as well, and they say, you know, how can we replicate what a commodity economy does instead of thinking about a socialist economy as a non-commodity economy? Right, as in thinking about socialist social relations and not trying to shoehorn capitalist social relation concepts into an idea of socialism to make it work. You know, like fundamentally, like there's a, a complete lack of imagination. From our point of view, I think the only book that we have read, there's probably only two books that we have read that have have attempted this in any great scale, and that would be The Fundamental Principles and LL Men's Two Texts. In response to these arguments on Mises, we have uh, essentially the market socialists get involved in this discussion. The first of these was Dickinson. Do you want to tell us what happened there? Right. So it's interesting because the socialists that came along and challenged them were these neoclassicals. They were people who were trained in the neoclassical school who didn't, you know, didn't agree with Marx at all in terms of the uh, labor theory of value, let's call it for uh, for convenience. Yeah, they came from from a totally different point of view. So for the Austrians, what that meant was that the calculation debate, as it actually happened, was not a debate with Marx's texts at all. It was a debate about something quite different. So Dickinson comes along with his price formation in a socialist community, and that begins the English language calculation debate. This this book is very good, goes through that in a lot of detail. And I'll give you a quote which really sums things up very well. This is a quote from Dickinson. And he says, the whole thing, that's to say the whole economy, socialist economy, could be resolved into a set of simultaneous equations. Or, since only a small deviation from an already established equilibrium need be considered, into a problem in the calculus of variations, end quote. So what the market socialists from the beginning were talking about was an optimization problem. It was about saying, how can we find the set of prices that will make all of the products sell in an equilibrium way and reproduce the economy according to a neoclassical model. Right, and maximize utility in the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Assuming so, profit-seeking behavior and everything like that, yeah. They replicated, instead of dealing with actual socialist or communist ideas about what, what an economy, a mode of production might be, they reduce this to uh, some competing firms that are maybe worker-controlled or state-controlled, depending on your variety, depending on your variety of market socialist. But they, they, they reduce the economy, like the neoclassicals do, to a, a system of equations that merely need solving to find these perfect prices that will optimize everyone's happiness in the economy will have the most utility, everybody's utility be maximized, right? And so they've changed what was, you know, should really in essence be a, a problem of social relations into a mathematical a problem. And that's exactly what the author gets right. I think really importantly in this book is he, he says, you know, the Austrians and the Marxists would have got this right. They would have said, 
I don't think he puts it in exactly these terms, but what he's saying is they would have said this is a question of social relations. So to put it like succinctly, I think, you know, a lot of the point of this book is to say that the data that is assumed to exist by the neoclassicals, that they can plug into their equations and show that everything resolves as it should, is not available, right, to, to in the economy. It's actually created by the capitalist mode of production, by the social relations, by the commodity economy, by the behavior of the entrepreneurs trying to find new opportunities for profit and also trying to create new types of goods and, and all that kind of stuff that comes along with that. You know, the, the Austrians are pretty are pretty straightforward on this. They say, or at least von Mises said, you know, if we assumed a static economy like this, where everything is known beforehand, then there, there is no calculation problem. You can just resolve the equations and the central planner could do that just fine, you know. But, but he's very clear, therefore, that that's not what the calculation problem is for him. And that leaves the neoclassicals in a bit of a problem. The neoclassicals kind of just have to, and when I say neoclassicals, I mean market socialists. They just kind of have to ignore that. And they just kind of talk past him and just say, well, this is, these are the models that, we, that we've got. So this is how we're going to solve it. And this is why the book is called, you know, Rivalry and Central Planning. Because it's absolutely fundamental to the Austrians. Yet again, they have a good critique, right? They have a social relational critique of the socialist calculation debate, the market socialists in there. But they, again, just narrow that socialist relation. They narrow that critique down only to, you know, the best of all possible worlds we have it already and what these other people are actually saying. And there is nothing in between or beyond the two. Absolutely. So you can see the flaws on all sides here. But um, I will say for the, the Austrians, at least at the beginning of the calculation debate, I think that was their absolute strongest point. Now, what the author here suggests is that, well, over time, you know, the Austrians strengthened their case even further. I would say they kind of weakened their case. For example, so then we have Hayek coming in and Hayek, he, he brings forward this, this other argument where he says, even if we presume that all of the relevant knowledge was gathered and continuously updated, so again, that knowledge that's created by the social relations, he says, okay, well, we'll grant you that. Assume that all of that is available to the central planners. He says then it would be practically impossible given the hundreds of thousands or millions of simultaneous equations that would need to be solved for a central planning office to do this. And that's really where the calculation debate goes down this turn that it's famous for, you know, big computer. Is it possible to solve the equations or not, right? And that's a total detour, total red herring from the original Austrian critique, which as we've talked about is very strong against the neoclassical market socialist. Now he says, oh, you can't solve the equations. Well, of course, you know, never tell a, a neoclassical that they can't solve a set of equations. That's just a, a red rag to a bull. And here we are today, you know, we have people talking about you know, Walmart and cockshots towards new socialism that, oh, look, lads, we can have those, you know, 600 million row largely sparse vectors and we can do it in a new programming language. And hey, presto, we can actually solve those equations like in your face, Hayek, right? And completely missing the point, which is the point is about the social relations. Like it is true. You can solve these static equations once they're a given. The Austrians' point is, well, how do you get those equations you want to solve in the first place? And 
it must also be then be stated. Like I just think that's that the not only did the Austrians it's interesting, not only did the Austrians not not continue with their strongest critique, go down this essentially I think like and I think we agree, kind of a blind alley missing the, the wood for the trees, but like the whole socialist movement has that the actual experience that people have taken from the Soviet Union and the, the or the market socialism of, of of Yugoslavia or the whatever you want to call in China or Cuba, the thing they've taken from it is oh yeah the, this is it was an informational computer problem not when it's staring straight in your face. The problem in the USSR was not a lack of computers; it was the social relations and yeah. alienated labor. And here's the the author at the beginning of the book. I just was searching for this, and I think he he really nails it. He says, Marx's critique of capitalism is inextricably intertwined with his concept of central economic planning. Now, we would disagree with that, but I'll continue. Modern socialists need to realize that if they condemn capitalism, they must either offer an alternative that eliminates this aspect of social production, he means production according to the law of value, or else the condemnation will be empty. And so that's what the Austrians at the very beginning were saying. That's what they meant. They weren't saying, you know, oh, uh, the economy is so complicated, uh, you could never figure out, out any, you know, that was something that, that came uh, as a sort of secondary point. But the, the principal point was that if you want to put it in these terms, the data that's required to, 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 to run the economy, and you don't even, shouldn't even think about it as data. We don't think about, you know, the profits and losses of, capitalist companies as data really it's you know it's it's the expression of exploitation of social relations everything like that unless you can unless you have a different system that works in some sense and creates a new set of social relations that allows the whole system to function and and not be wasteful create lots lots of innovation and essentially outperform capitalism and and do better than it in all kinds of criteria that it would need to do for it to become dominant then your criticism of capitalism is just worthless. Now, it's interesting because we have the entry of Oscar Lang and Fred M. Taylor, who come up with quite systematized ways of, from a neoclassical point of view, that answer the critiques that, that these guys have. And they set up some simple rules for managers of stuff to follow and the central planners to follow that will allow, essentially, the economy to function mathematically it is the equivalent of how the neoclassicals modeled the capitalist economy. And this was seen as like a great defeat of the Austrian point, not the Austrian point of view, a great defeat of the capitalist economists, essentially, who were probably largely at this point neoclassicals. Yeah, so Lange's idea was basically to create these neoclassical uh, objective like equilibrium conditions of supply equals demand. And that this would be met through price corrections, like kind of iteratively, and that the central planning board would be able to respond to surpluses and shortages and, and get companies to act, get the publicly owned companies to act in such a way that it would like replicate what capitalist firms do. Now, the important thing about it is, though, that uh, what the Austrians um, critiqued, and I think, you know, they were right, I mean, that the only ignorance, the only unknown that's built into this neoclassical model of a socialist economy or of a rather centrally planned economy is, as he says, a temporary ignorance of the correct prices. So basically, 
the plant manager is able to read like data, cost curves and optimal quantities and stuff like that. And then he's able to take certain actions and it's, it can be shown that the correct prices, which are out of equilibrium at the beginning, by the end are in equilibrium. And, you know, based on what we've even said so far, you know, you can understand that that totally misses the point from the Austrians' point of view. They're saying the data doesn't exist in the first place if you don't have capitalists who are trying to make new products and compete against each other and win market share and all that stuff. Right. It totally leaves out from the equations, like the discovery process of, of you know, agents, self-organizing agents under capitalism. It assumes a static view of the economy, of the number of inputs and the outputs and the number of products and the number of workers and et cetera. And it solves a given set of equations. And, you know, the Austrians are right. They're saying, like, that's not the problem we're trying to deal with, right? That's not a real idea of economy at all. No more than cockshots N by N matrix is the fucking real vision of the economy, right? It's a viewpoint that is lacking in some of the most very fundamental aspects of the dynamism of the economy. Yeah, so to put it, I mean, succinctly, I think, you know, means of production or methods of production are basically discovered and tested. They're not just optimized. They are optimized, but they're not just optimized. The only criticism that I think we would make here of the Austrians is that, you know, they they assume that production for profit is the only way that you can achieve that. And they want to assume that. They don't allow any other possibility. To be fair to them, the socialists that they're arguing against never imply any other possibility, so they're never challenged on. So what we must say here in kind of defense then of the Lange and Fred Taylor and the market socialists is that they basically kicked back very hard against the Austrian critique of saying you need to solve a whole load of simultaneous equations or whatever, linear algebra. And they said, look, they said, in the real world, in the economy and say capitalism, those equations get solved in the market. You know, if the price is too high, people don't buy it, it goes down too low. And there is a, an algorithm. The market is essentially an algorithm for trying to balance supplies and demands and bring forth, reduce in the opposite way, production of certain types of, of goods. And, and they put forward like very simple ways in which you can replicate this concept of the market. So they were fundamentally correct in, 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 the, in that point. And I think that's certainly for our book, we have essentially unknown to ourselves come up with basically very similar analysis than Fred Taylor. Some of the points that Fred Taylor made in his like famous paper is some of the stuff that we think is absolutely central to how we can value a scarce goods to get over the problems of labor time accounting scarce goods. And so like, so there are really valid elements to be taken from all sides in this debate. So it's not, I'd like to kind of point out that we're not just saying the Austrians were right here, but also the, there was elements of the market socialists, you know, both Lange and in particular Fred Taylor that are fundamentally, I think, correct and kind of central to how, we will model how our ideas form of how to organize a socialist economy. Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying at all that uh, optimization is not useful or anything like that. Obviously, um, I think it has its very, very strong place. I just think, and um, no, you agree that the optimization is not a replacement for social relations. 
it's very interesting that essentially Paracon planning mechanism relies on these insights of Lange and Fred Taylor about you have an iterative process whereby you can basically find your way to a good solution for prices that optimize utility in the economy. It's explicitly based on these ideas. And the irony is as well, and it's something that you know we see replicated across all of the socialist schemes for planning economies that have, have a completely misconceived notion of what planning is, is that they have a, this kind of idea of one's big plan, okay? Not a living, constantly changing, self-organizing plan. They have one large plan that is static and must be solved. And once you have that idea of a, of a system, you introduce essentially so many problems. And it, it's so ironic that we have ended up the vast majority of like communist ideas of planning have ended up in this conceptual dead end. That can happen uh, sometimes, you know, where people go down uh, academically. The all, if, once it becomes that all of the academic literature is sort of based on on a certain perspective, I think people get a blind spot to the deeper problems, which are that you know the whole direction has been wrong. So, like for example, though it's not it's not all been that way. So Dickinson, we mentioned earlier, was one of the market socialists involved in this. And he said, you know, he he kind of did take account of this to some extent. And he said that there should be a um, kind of re- uh, reward tied for the uh, managers of the publicly owned companies that they would like get a financial reward, you know, in exchange for doing what the central planners want. And of course, that's exactly what we see in every real centrally planned economy. That's exactly how it works. You have a target and the manager and often the workers as well get bonuses get rewards which are very substantial for achieving those targets now what i would say is it's a it's a major concession that he that he said that and of course that's exactly what the austrians wanted to hear because effectively what the what you're saying you know if you're a central planner saying that you know what you're going to do is you're going to reward people on how well they do as pretend capitalists and you're going to reward them monetarily for it and so of course the austrians were able to just say look you just cut out the middleman here and just keep capitalism because effectively you're that's what you're talking about. You're saying we have to model capitalism precisely in order to make a commodity economy work, which is true. <laughs> that is what you have to do. Right. And it, it's a really brilliant ins- it's a really brilliant argument because it's completely correct. Because the market socialists have said, well, they've kind of conceded already to the fact they've conceded to to keeping a commodity economy which is already a large concession away from the writings of Marx and Engels. But not only did they concede, but then they, it's like the one-two, <laughs> you know? It's like the jab and the, the straight right. The left jab and the straight right. The left jab being that they conceded the idea of commodity production, and then the, the Austrians come in with the straight right, which is, well, you've conceded that, you might as well just have fucking capitalism. And the social relations in really existing socialism meant that they ended up right back there yeah of course i think that's really telling you know that they were having these arguments so long ago and that even some of the market socialists realized you know to make this thing work we would need to make it so that it had the same kind of dynamics you'd need to monetarily reward people for being very good pretend capitalists you know? yeah i mean i think that you know the austrians definitely won that round so this was more of the same, by the way. Dickinson suggested like that the planning, the planners 
would offer to quote him an incentive to experiment and so you know you'd also pay people to come up with great ideas so you'd pay the, the managers to come up with ideas and you'd pay the managers to win market share and yeah in the end uh, it's hard to say what exactly you're planning you know i mean not to win market share sorry just to be more precise to do what the planners want you to do and of course what the planners in a, in a socialist economy want you to do is to is to meet the plan targets which is always to increase the scale of what you're doing by the most that seems practicable and that has huge problems of course this game of bluff between the manager and the planners as to what is practicable and and so on so i suppose it's it's worth not mentioning as well that when this book came out it came out in 1986 i think that at that stage it's it's kind of hard to believe but at that stage you know it was kind of accepted fact it was like an accepted fact that the socialist the market socialists had won the calculation debate this is you know, four years before the Soviet Union fell on its ass, five years before it was dissembled, you know, five years after this book was written, the Soviet Union no longer existed. This book was a, rev- was a revisionist project at the time. It was trying to revise what was understood as happened during the, the debate. And I think if you were to ask somebody today about the calculation debate, Certainly, my experience of having vaguely been aware of it for many years was that, oh, yeah, the socialists or the communists got their asses kicked in that debate, which is which is completely not true. It was like an accepted orthodoxy that the market socialists had won it prior to the actual fall of the Soviet Union. Nowadays, it looks crazy to think that that was the accepted viewpoint, but that actually was the accepted viewpoint. Yeah, and that's a, that's a point that he ma- the author makes at the beginning of the book and, again, in the conclusion to the book, because, as you say, it's a revisionist book. That's what he wants to correct. He's, he's saying, you know, the socialists shouldn't, or the market socialists should not have been considered to have won the calculation debate because, actually, the Austrian points still all stand, all of the Austrian objections. Um, no, I don't think that's true. Again, he says all the Austrian objections were very kind of strong and one of them built on the other and the whole thing becomes stronger. I actually think that, you know, any, I think that a reasonable reading of the book is that the Austrians offered some really good critiques about social relations, and then they offered some really weak ones on top of that, because they just want, they were just determined to put forward the view that only, you know, for-profit companies in a very narrow sense can make a capitalist economy, can make any economy work. Sorry, can make any complicated economy work. That was their view. So like, for example, they would reject, and it's it's discussed in the book, that any entrepreneur, let's say, in a commodity economy who is spending other people's money, right, as they put it, could replicate the role of an entrepreneur spending their own money, right? So everyone has to be spending their own money. That's the only way you can discover what things are really worth and so on. Well, that's just not true. I and mean, maybe whatever, whatever chance there was of that being true in the 1930s in the sense that people understood these things, and I'm sure there are still Austrians who make these arguments. But or, even then, even then, like Marx was talking about, you know, joint stock companies in 1853, right? You know, the idea, I mean, now when we have, you know, huge investment companies and a history of huge investment, public and private sector that have, you know, even the things like window guidance and post-war Japan, so-called Japanese economic miracles based on it and stuff where, you know, it is, it's all firms spending other people's money or other people's credit and, you know, making their economy grow fantastically. That's what a lot of the global economy is based on. That's how it works. So, yeah. So, like a lot of the Austrian ideas, a lot of their critiques, I'm, I don't think are relevant anymore. I'm sure they would say something like some of the true believers maybe would say, if only those investment funds and so on didn't exist, 
you and you had like all small entrepreneurs, they would do a better job or not necessarily small ones, I suppose, but just entrepreneurs, they would do a better job with their own money. If only capital didn't concentrate. If only the accumulation of capital didn't concentrate. It wouldn't if it wasn't for the government getting in the way. You know, it's true. Making it monopolies. Is, that is true. It is ironic that their, their best critiques, they shifted onto these informational-based kind of critiques, which were really not, not very good critiques at all, and they didn't stand up yeah. to the test of time. But it's interesting because, like we were talking earlier, what we think the reason why they did that was because, you know, neoclassical economics became so dominant that to offer like a kind of a, a critique, you know, in the socialist calculation debate that was based around dynamism or, you know, non-equilibrium, it just wouldn't be taken seriously. It would just be ignored in academia. So they actually, you know, had to lose their strongest weapon to be able to be taken seriously within these debates. Which I think explains very well why um, Hayek's point became so central to the whole thing about systems of equations and, oh, you could never calculate them because that's really something that someone schooled in neoclassical economics could really get their, their heads around as a problem, you know, and that's something you could generate a lot of papers on and so on and something that's potentially, you know, kind of provable, right, or can be disproven. So, so that's interesting, but... I wanted to also touch on Lerner, who we shouldn't forget, from the market socialist side. Now, Lerner felt that, uh, and this is discussed in the book, that optimizing for profit was the wrong approach and that what the planners should do instead is to optimize for opportunity cost. So like what commodities the producers you know, would like to make versus alternatives that they could potentially choose. But as the author points out, and I think it's really quite well said, um, by putting it in this neoclassical framework of these independent commodity producers, the argument is basically incoherent because I'll quote what the what the author says here. What bureaucratic inspector can observe a decision maker and verify whether he is, in good faith, acting optimally according to his own expectations? Right. So I can't tell whether you're acting optimally according to your own expectations. Like the inspector can't tell that you're actually maximizing your opportunity costs or minimizing your opportunity costs, that you're actually getting to produce those commodities that you want to do most like how can they tell that you're telling even the truth about what that is right and these were clever guys you know like the neoclassical the market socialist but they were really trying to formalize you know how do capitalist entrepreneurs and capitalists function and trying to make that into something that could be replicated by a planning committee and i think these are the kind of absurdities that you end up in when you try to do that Hayek had some interesting things to say when trying to discuss the efficiency of the Soviet economy versus, say, the capitalist economy. Yeah, that's right. So in one of the sort of latter chapters, um, they're talking about this kind of idea that's around, that was obviously around very strong when this book was being written, that Hayek had retreated from Mises' earlier declaration. He actually said that a centrally planned economy was impossible. And you know, the, the the author saying, oh, this wasn't kind of to be taken literally. Obviously, the USSR existed already. The claim wasn't that it would be impossible, just that, well, to quote him, he says, there's no reason to expect that production would stop or the authorities would find difficulty in using all of the available resources, or even that output would be permanently lower than it had been before the planning started. But rather, in such a restricted price system, we would find output to be lower than it would have been if the price system had been allowed to operate freely. 
and he continues. I'll just finish because it's actually a good piece. It says, some lines of production would be overdeveloped at the expense of others at a cost which is not justified by the importance of their increased output. Now, it doesn't, you know, you can think about this for two seconds and obviously it's completely ambiguous what is meant by importance here, the importance of some of these production lines. And this is the problem the Austrians run into. What he means, obviously, is a short run sort of profitable return on investment. And that's what he means by when he always says like something that's efficient, rational, suitable, whatever the, the word is here, they say, you know, uh, important. But then, so that's kind of odd, you know, but then Hayek makes it even odder by saying that the USSR has to be judged based on two criteria. And he actually says, these are the only two legitimate tests of success. It says, first, the ability to produce consumer goods. And secondly, the degree of rationality of the decision of central authority. And he says, of course, they fail on both counts. Well, that's very odd because, you know, first of all, these are not the criteria that the Austrians use to evaluate the success of a classical capitalist economy. So it makes no sense why they choose these two criteria for the USSR to as the only legitimate tests of its success. And secondly, what he says by rationality, when he says the rationality of the decision of central authority, well, rationality is just left ambiguous. Of course, what he means again is the sort of profitable return on investment. So I think this is a case of the Austrians showing themselves, or at least Hayek showing himself to be very, very sloppy intellectually. And the author, who's obviously a very sharp guy, having written this book, either doesn't see it or doesn't want to see it. Because if this was coming from the market socialists, I feel like he would definitely call it out as being something that's totally inconsistent. All of this, these ideas we see, you know, the kind of technical term for treating like firms in socialism or whatever, you know, market socialism, whatever, having to treat them like as if they were individual capitalist firms to make things work. This idea of parameterized prices, that's that's the kind of technical jargon they say. But it's like, it just really shows you that once you even have the concept of profit in the economy, like once you have this concept of profit, that this firm is making a profit, this firm is not making a profit, everything is fucked. The minute that's in there, everything is fucked. And it's like, it is really amazing. It shows to me the absolute strength of the GIC and LL Men stuff, although he is actually taking it from the GIC, essentially, he's taking it from the Council Communists. But really, the GIC are the only people, you know, the, the initiators of this concept of explicitly showing how the, there is no profit in the in these equations. You know, we can say that the Paricon people don't have profit, and that's true. But they've they've shot the bed by introducing neoclassical concepts of of money and also of statics. So they do get, I will give them that, they do at least get the idea of not having profits. But uh, every other one, once you enter profits in, you know, it's downhill from there. Not downhill. I don't know what, down, downhill would mean it was easy. It's all all fucked from there. Yeah, it's fucked. Yeah. And he, he, he sums up on this in the next little piece where he says, you know, in, in a very important sense, the Soviet economy isn't essential or wasn't when he was writing isn't a centrally planned economy at all he quotes this guy uh, eugene uh, zaleski who did a study apparently of the soviet economy and he quotes him as saying the existence of a central plan coherent and perfect to be subdivided and implemented at all levels is only a myth what actually exists in any centrally administered economy 
is an endless number of plans constantly evolving, coordinated ex post after they have already been put into operation. And he says, in short, what exists is not planning, but economic rivalry. And that's a great kind of end to the, the chapter where he's, he's kind of saying the Austrians got them in the end, that what they ended up with. Uh, now, of course, you know, the market socialists wouldn't have any, they wouldn't claim to be representing the USSR or anything like that. But but he's still saying that, that this confirms the Austrian critique, that what the, the USSR would have to do is to make an economy that is simply a, a less good commodity economy, which tries to perform like capitalism, but can't, can't quite make it. A less unequal form of capitalism with just as much alienated labor and probably less responsiveness. Well, certainly less responsiveness. Yeah. And it's one of the, one of the problems as far as, you know, the, the, the faithful application of the law of value, it is a responsive system, but it's responsive to people who have money. So the Soviet system was not responsive at all, you know, in, in that sense. It was, you know, it was much, much less responsive in general, including to people who had money. And maybe a lot of socialists would look at that and say, that's a good thing. You know, I mean, if you had money, you couldn't buy, you couldn't, you couldn't skip your way to the top of the queue a lot of times. That's not a viable economic system then, you know, if a commodity economy where money can't buy the things that you want. Okay, so you, you can see what way that system is going to reform. And it ain't good. Yeah, a lot of the Austrian stuff is bullshit as well, so it's hard to know how much time to spend on it. You know, it's really like a lot of it is just stuff like, oh, in the market socialist economy, like firms don't actually have profits and losses because a profit and loss is only real if it's your money and stuff. There was one thing in there that he said earlier on in the introduction where he kind of puts forward the socialist calculation debate as essentially an argument between three fundamentally different paradigms, like the Marxist the Austrian and the neoclassicals. And in honesty, like I think that that is both kind of a good way of putting it and also a bad way of putting it. As in, he tries to make the case as if there was a singular Marxist notion of communism or socialist planning. And we can see, right, that the, you know, the council communists weren't nobodies in 1920s Germany. You know, they were, they had large political parties. You know, they were 5 10% of the population. They were a large amount. You know, the kind of left wing of the SPD was a large part of the, of the German proletariat. Yet it is always interesting to see how little any of their discussions or their theories are in there. You know, we can see from the socialist calculation debate, there's never a, man- a mention of syndicalism or anarchism or anything right? It's purely state socialists that they're arguing with. They're literally arguing essentially with the, the, the right wing of the German SPD and the Soviet Union. That, and they're, they're the people that they're arguing with at the time of the debate. Right. I think that's totally fair. Maybe because one of the reasons is because they had so many shared points of reference. You know, It's true that the Austrians were, were heterodox in the sense that they really weren't uh, accepted into the mainstream, even though they're fanatically let's say pro system you know in, in a kind of broad sense of like pro capitalism but i think but it depends no, on what time you're talking about like i think in the 20s they would have been very much a normal wing of economic study but by the 40s they would have been fringe and and, and ever after i suppose yeah you know but i think the important point here is that in terms of the arguments that they're making overall what they want to get across in this book what the author wants to get across is that actually the neoclassical school is incapable of dealing with 
the challenge in the first place, which the Austrians presented to Marx, and to not to Marx directly, but to the Marxist tradition, because they're incapable of, 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 of actually creating some kind of response to the challenge that was put down. He's able then to be unchallenged in the kind of claims that the book makes, which again, I, you know, he's, it's a, it's a, it's a good book. It's like the guy's very sharp. I think he knows that, that there could be challenges made to these points that he's making, but they're not made. The w- a way that I would think about it is like he, he's kind of saying that, you know, only a profit seeking economy maximizes for efficiency, which again is a synonym for profitability for him. Thus, it informs all decisions. It doesn't just maximize for profit making and discourage loss making. It informs the entire shape of the economy, the dynamics of the economy, everything about how it works and uh, all of the all of the relations social relations and all of the incentive structure and everything that goes with that and what we would say i think maybe you don't like this uh form uh, of words i don't know but it's one way to think about it i think is that you know for a socialist economy there there kind of is an objective function if you like you know in a broad sense but it's not it's not private profit which is what he's kind of saying ties everything together for capitalism it's more like the something like the opportunity cost of the of the commune so whereas the Austrians are left unchallenged by the end of this book in their view that private profit-seeking behavior not only drives a modern complex economy, but is the only thing that could drive a modern complex economy. I think uh, maybe you won't like the form of this words. I know you don't like to talk about opportunity costs when you're uh, the things your sort of pet hates, but you know you could view it as kind of the opportunity cost of the commune is what drives the socialist economy and all the sort of implications that come from that. It's a pity that in the socialist tradition after Marx, there's very little about that. There's very little in the literature about it. Unfortunately, yeah, we have a little bit of a, I would say, impoverished intellectual tradition because it is all within this. The socialists are actually in the neoclassical tradition, the markets, the people who are arguing in the calculation debate. And that's uh, led us to a lot of the problems we're in. Right, you know, like the kind of idea, Marxist ideas of communism got replaced by uh, a productivist Prometheanism, to say a few words beginning with P. But it, also, I think when we come out of the book at the end, like it, it's big attack. <laughs> you think it's really on the socialists, but it's nearly on the neoclassicals and statics. And I think like it's as much an attack on statics. And I think fundamentally that attack is correct and the socialists around today are all stuck in a statics mind frame they're stuck in this idea that we need to get all this information into a computer and solve it right and in reality we said i think probably a million times when we were doing our reading group of the fundamental principles but that the general ledger is the solved n by n 300 million line matrix yeah, the bank accounts we have in the economy today, they are actually the, uh, the representation of, a, of the social relational way in which this problem is solved in the real world. And it's the outputs we have, the outputs that we have in our economy, like w- we will have on our general ledger in a GIC type thing, is a record of what the solution was, as opposed to a command for the economy to do. And fundamentally, that the critique that they have in here of about statics and the solving of 
you know, this centrally planned way to solve an economy is fundamentally correct. And it's the fundamental problem that exists today in conceptions of what it is to be a socialist or communist economy. And the only other way about doing it is where people have no conception of what it is kind of whatsoever. Or they have a syndicalist one, which is basically market socialism when it comes down to it. You know, and so there, there is, as always in these things, there is what like people say Marx said, which is usually crazy. And then there's arguments against what Marx said, which beat those crazy arguments. But Marx was somewhere in the middle. I think we've said it before, but, you know, the mode of production solves the equations, not the other way around. In the end of the day, those are the discussions we should have been having for all these years. I think, <laughs> you know, but by getting hung up on the equations and by getting hung up on the kind of rules that central planners could apply in order to make everyone act as if it was capitalism, uh, we got we just got lost. You know, we should we should have to come up. We'll have to do some study, some Latin, so we'll come up with some like prod, post, hocto, base, something like we'll say all this in very elegant way, and then we can How just did you say, say that phrase. It sounded elegant. Say it again. Far from it. I was given out about Ulster Protestants. That's what it was. Sectarianism. <laughs> Sectarianism alive and well here on the Irish Communist Podcast. No, okay. but we must tell the listeners as well that we actually recorded this interview already today and it didn't record. So we're actually drinking doing this one. So that's why our uh, sectarian ways are, are coming out. Yes. The sectarian uh, jokes are coming out. No, I'm joking. Speech is slurred and... Well, the listeners can tell, yeah. Yeah, we're getting more and more. I'm drinking whiskey and you're drinking some red wine. Is that it? I'm on the wine here, yeah. Okay. Which is unusual, but it was the it was the only drink that was around, so we will. That or the bleach, the toilet bleach. Is there anything we haven't discussed? Well, I think, yeah, I think we've, we've given a reasonable uh, overview for the listeners. So we definitely encourage everyone to check it out. This is one of very few books I think we've really said that about. Also, the LMN book was there anything else that listeners definitely need to check out yeah i don't know like i think maybe because we're so far into these debates you know to do the book you know maybe you know somebody might read this and think it's rubbish find it boring but really i was really blown away by this book when i read it you know i could not believe how good his arguments were in places obviously we've gone through a lot of the failings and blind spots of the Austrians, et cetera, et cetera. But my God, when he's right, he's very right and he's very succinct and he's incredibly direct. And, you know, if he was alive, I would have had him on the, I would have had him on the podcast. He would be the first right winger that I knew about. I would have had on the podcast at the time sure. of interview. And I would have no problem interviewing the guy because I think it's a really, uh, it's a brilliant work that, you know, us as commies or socialists can, take the good bits out of and learn a lot from fundamentally absolutely okay let's get out of here let's stop the recording you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website the theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. 
This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. Thank you.